Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to Off The Beat and Track Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Stu Whiffin. It's another week, therefore it's another episode. Today's episode, I talked to Bishy and, well, I'm going to say it, it's one of my favourite ever episodes. Um... We go in like, oh my god! I mean, Bishi has done some stuff, and ah, oh, what an incredible talker she is as well. You're in for a real treat today. Um, I did not want this natter to finish, and something quite unique happens at the end. Um, we talk about her working with Tony Visconti. Um, well, we don't. We forget to actually talk about her. I make a, a reference when we're nattering to say, "Well, we definitely talk about." Um, your work with Tony Visconti, which um, we forgot to do. So we revisited it after we had a chat, and I've dropped that in there as well. It'll all make sense towards the end of the recording anyway. Um, before we get on with this wonderful chat, um, just a few thank yous. Um, so thank you to Scroobius Pip and everyone at the Distraction Pieces Network, which this podcast is very proud to be part of. Thanks for 76 for producing this podcast. Thank you very much, mate. Um, and thank you to you lot for continuing to, to listen and, and support and say lovely things about this, this podcast, which is, again, it's my, my little labour of love where I go and disappear up the shed and, and press record on Zoom and, and have some wonderful natters with some absolutely glorious people. And this is definitely one of those. And, uh, and you're, like I say, you're in for a real treat. Um, if this is your first time listening, then when you get to the end of this um, ace natter with Bishy, then go and explore the back catalogue because you can hear me talking to artists as diverse as Fatboy Slim, um, Tommy Lee of Motley Crue, the Foo Fighters, Suede, Idols, Sleaford Mods, um, Mark Moore. Um, oh, I've got an actors such as Maxine Peake, Joe Hartley, Amanda Abington, uh, Michael Smiley, Thomas Turgus, um, producers. We talk about garbage briefly on this podcast as well. Um, I talked to um, Butch Fig. That's an amazing episode um, talking to Butch. Um, yeah, and if you like your comedy, you can hear me talking to Maisie Adam, Jade Adams, Ed Gamble, James Acaster. Uh, the list goes on. So uh, go and have a rummage in the archives when you get to the end of this chat. Right, that's enough nattering from me. Um, we're going to head over now and get some ace chat from today's guest. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce Off The Beat and Track podcast with the wonderful Bishy. Sorry, I've interrupted the podcast, but with good reason. 
Hotel Chocolat are our sponsors. You know that now because I tell you about it every episode. But they've been super kind now. And you may have heard me talking about the products from the cacao bar and there's gins, cream liqueurs, all sorts of wonderful chocolatey goodies. Um, And what they've done is they've set a page up on the website that you can go to. And all you've got to do is just for you off the beaten track listeners, go over there, answer a question, and you could win the full range delivered to your front door. I mean, that's kind of them. All you have to do is go to this place, hotelchocolat.com forward slash OTBT podcast. That's OTBT as in off the beaten track podcast, hotelchocolat.com forward slash OTBT podcast. Go get your grubby little mitts on some deliciously chocolatey drinks, courtesy of our sponsors, Hotel Chocolat. I'll get back to the podcast. It's Off The Beat and Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stu Whipping. Okay, we are recording. Bishy, how are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you? I'm all right. I'm radiant and glowing. It's um, The sun is shining today, which is always a nice start to a Friday. I know. You look glowing. I, I feel like you're getting the sunlight on your face there. It is. I've just got it right as well, because I'm in like this little shed at the end of my garden, and... Uh, and normally, when I open the blind, I kind of go that really weird sort of transparent, like where I'm just glowing off the sun and like you can't actually see my face. So <laughs> it's just right now. It actually makes me look like I've got a little bit of a tan. I think the white yeah. T-shirt's helping. So, yeah, all is good so far. Um, well, before we get on with your playlist today, um, I just kind of want to cast, you know, ask you to cast your mind back over the last sort of 17, 18 months and just tell me how you found this odd time um for for all of us i guess um how you found it both personally and creatively well i think personally there's been a lot of difficulties and i think there have been for most people for whatever reason whether that's family career kind of losing people to to covid there's definitely been a lot of that that's gone on but creatively i have found it hugely expansive and that was completely unexpected. Like that first three months was so depressing and surreal for everybody. And I took to my studio and I was actually kind of jamming and uh, experimenting with various pedals. Like I was making a sitar sample pack for a company called Lambda. So I kind of got my teeth stuck into that. But I just find myself passing out in the middle of the day, just exhausted from the not knowing I guess it's like a kind of like depression um in a sense but yeah I got together my women in tech podcast and it's it's been really unexpectedly some um opportunities opened up for me I got some funding so I'd recorded a single with Tony Visconti and I was able to put that out and do a number of like online events like I went through the whole process of how do you deal with an online release you know um and I ended up in uh doing an interview with Tony Visconti on the night of the release and that was really great fun and yeah, then I ended up doing a digital um, online women in tech festival and I got Laurie Anderson to headline that. So it's been really expansive. And I find that people have connected in a way that they couldn't really face to face, even though I've really missed. I've missed gigs. I've missed clubs. I have mourned dance floors. I have really missed that 
bit of cultural life that is so important for musicians and DJs. Um, I managed to turn it around on the digital side of things and on the online sphere. I think that's what, what you've just said there of all the things that you've missed and all of the things that you've you've then spun off of not being able to do that. That's the kind of punk ethos at its very core that I just get super excited about stuff like that. It's so DIY, isn't it? It's like, right, okay, we can't do this. We can't do this. We can't, right, what have we got at our disposal here? Right, let's see what we can do with that. And that's where the good stuff comes from. Exactly, yeah. And I started working with a VR company, so I've understood how to code VR into my Ableton projects and I've just got like super nerdy and just you know I, I went on music production courses I kind of up my skills on on so many levels and I think it's been really relentless and hard for everybody but that's in a sense what has brought us all together we're all going through this weirdness together and really interesting conversations I've, I've connected with so many artists and had so many brilliant conversations, seen so many panels and things that I just hadn't really seen before. And I'm very much like a girl about town. I like to go out to things. I like to experience things. I'm very interested in other people and what they're going through and what their expression is, be that kind of music or bands or tech or whatever, you know. And so I really re-engaged with all of that in a way that I never thought was possible so that's been really exciting but it's been tough on everyone hasn't it yeah totally but all the things that you said you've done there was that was there a knee jerk like quickly as soon as we got told that this 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 thing that was called lockdown was happening and yeah you know and all of a sudden like I, I'm, I'm a I run a venue and and that yes. that was closed and it was like oh god like the, the shit's getting real here like yeah. was there when all of them things were kind of taken away from you, was it quite a quick response to like, right, okay, so I can't do what I normally do, so how, what can I do with this time? Or was it, did you just, because I spoke to so many people about this and, yeah. and some people just kind of went, well, I'm generally touring 24-7, so that's, yeah. that's stopped now, so right, I'm now going to write this record. And they tried to write it straight away and it just wouldn't happen because yeah. they weren't in a, the right creative headspace to do such. Like, how did that work for you? Was it quite a quick thing that you just cracked on or did you kind of try and process what was happening before you sort of made time for it? Yeah, so, I, so I'm one of those people that I've always got a few plates spinning in the air and I already had a number of outstanding projects that I could get my teeth into but I'd be lying if I said for the first three months I would like pass out in the middle of the day and I, I think it was just some kind of a depression or just just being really traumatized by the whole thing um I think everybody experienced that to some degree and then it opened up over the summer a little bit and then it was all you know we, we just We've all just had to adapt as we go, you know. Yeah. But I definitely, yeah, I've got friends and mentors who are like, right, Bishy, this is the time, launch this, launch that. And I'm very active, but I'd be lying if I had said, oh, yeah, it was really easy. Like, it really, yeah. <laughs> it really was not easy. And so as a venue owner, like, is, is your venue all right? Are you... Yes, so we, we, we're really lucky. Our, my venue's in Essex, it's called the Pink Toothbrush, and it's yeah. uh, it's the sort of longest-running alternative club in the UK. 
Um, oh, wow. Uh, so it's kind of steeped in history, Bishy. It was like, it used to be called yeah. Crocs. And, and we spoke beforehand of, uh, of of our mutual friend, Mark Moore. And, and that was kind of how my, my friendship with Mark kind of got got moving really was talking about the kind of new romantic scene and yeah. and how my club was 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 very sort of pivotal in that and uh oh, uh, wow. and, and and yeah and so we're quite lucky because where we're based in Essex we have no competition there is nothing that left field or alternative where we mm. live it's lots of kind of towy type clubs uh <laughs> which which isn't really what we're about and so we've been really lucky that we've just got this kind of diehard following and, and they've just stuck with us throughout. And we're really famous for having a sticky, a really dirty, sticky carpet, which, um, <laughs> which do <laughs> it's just stale beer and teen spirit. It's just, it's just that. Yes. And, uh, and, and anybody that's been to the, to, to the club will always reference that I've oh, got stuck to the carpet. Like, <laughs> and, uh, and so it's just been this ongoing thing for like 30 years. And so over lockdown, just beforehand, we had our carpets changed, and so we kept it and we cut it into small pieces and framed it. And we sold like two and a half thousand framed bits of our sticky carpet, which that was testament to the, the love and support of our our clubbers. And it oh also meant that it helped pay our bills and to get us through it. So again, just using that kind of like right shit, we're 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 in trouble here. How do we get around this? And that mm. punk ethos DIY kind of mindset of like, what yeah. have we got that we can do here? Because we can't open yeah. our doors, we can't play records. So yeah, and so we've been really lucky. We sat tight when everybody yeah. reopened when they got the green light. We didn't. We, right. waited, we waited a month till bank holiday weekend just to kind of see if there was going to be any glaringly obvious mistakes that everyone was going to make and we could we learn yeah. from that. And, and thankfully, there were no glaringly obvious mistakes. It all seems to be returning to lots of joyous faces with their hands in the air screaming. Brilliant. So, I'm so happy. Oh, my God, that's such a happy <laughs> ending. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure you must have gone through bits of that process and been like, fuck. Sorry, can I swear? Yeah, of course you can, fuck. yeah. You must you must have sat there and just thought, fuck, for Fishy, a lot of the year. For, for every Friday and Saturday night for the last 30 years, that's been my home. Yeah. And, like, and I'd never, like, maybe I'd had, like, two weekends off a year when I'd gone on holiday, and it was like, all of a sudden, it wasn't there. And it was so mm. strange and so surreal. And, yeah, and, yeah, and it's, it's I'm, I'm there tonight, and I, I literally can't wait to get there because – it's not, I mean, everybody that's there, like we've got glass collectors that have worked there 18 years. It's like yeah. a real lovely little family and it's, yeah. it's, it shouldn't work the club, Bishy. It's like, it's, it's this tiny little doorway in this small town and it's got a ridiculous name and we play really fucking not loud, abrasive, noisy music, but nice. it works. And, and yeah, and it's just, and it's lovely because over the last 18 months, so many people have turned 18, 19, sorry, uh, 17, uh, 18, 19. They've never been clubbing. Yeah. And yes, so I know. Two years worth of these excited kids that are like, oh, my God, this is a nightclub. This is what happens. And it's yeah. lovely seeing their faces experience it for the first time right. as well. So, yeah, I digress. I'm banging on about myself. This isn't what this podcast <laughs> is about. We're talking about you today. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. Let's start the playlist. Bishy, tell me the song that you think has the greatest ever intro, please. Well, a song that I think has one of the greatest intros. No, that's um, not what I asked. I want, <laughs> I want the, I want the, oh, you can have some honourable mentions. Don't swerve it. Come on. Okay, okay, okay. 
So the song with the greatest intro is Ain't No Mountain High Enough by Diana Ross and the Supremes. It's absolutely epic. And my drag queen wife in LA, I saw her lip sync to this once in a club in LA. And it's just always stuck out for me. It's always stuck out. It's, I think it's her spoken word intro and, you know, the softness of her delivery around those words and then the epicness of the brass and the strings and the orchestra. And I think also, I think it was on an advert when I was a kid. I think it was on a DHL It was, advert. it was. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. So that's where I recognised it from. And I always thought it was epic. And it was those days where there was, you know, it was like in the 90s. So I couldn't like Shazam it or, or, or anything. But I remember being in this club in LA and my very glamorous drag queen wife Phyllis lip-synced it and it was be- it was beautiful oh it's a glorious record and and the, the intro it, once you've heard it once you know what's coming you get that payoff because when it drops oh my god it's just euphoric isn't it yeah yeah absolutely it it keeps going it, 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 euphoria is the word for that song it keeps going up and up because it's not just the intro then it's the chorus and then it goes even it, it it modulates in the brass to an even higher key and you're like oh okay we we really are like climbing up the mountain here so yeah it's extraordinary have you seen diana ross live i haven't do you know what i was going to get tickets for doing the, the o2 before. isn't she yeah yeah, yeah i really want to go i i just think like i love divas and and the history of kind of 20th, 21st century divadom, but she is up there as being one of the people who created the modern day diva as we know, you know, and, and, and it was growing through the Supremes. So she was definitely sort of school during the Motown era, but what happened during the seventies and then her being involved with Niall Rogers and everything, it just went to this other level. I mean, you had Cher on one side and then you had, Diana Ross on the other side. And, and then you had people like LaBelle who were doing the whole Afrofuturist thing. They were inventing the kind of Afrofuturist diva, whereas Diana Ross was doing the classic diva. Like what we all think is diva yeah. is, is Diana Ross, right? The like big hair, the, the fishtail skirt, the big furs, the, you know, like ripping your coat open, like all of that kind of stuff, all of that language. Yeah. So, Yeah. I watched. Um, I don't know if you saw it. There was a uh, a documentary on about two months ago about the Bee Gees. And, uh, yes. Did you watch it? Yeah, love. Oh my god! And when they got to obviously like Barry writing for other artists, and for me growing up, I, I'm I'm 48, so I think I was probably at that point where I was getting a little bit fussy with my music. And I remember like loving the Supremes, loving Diana Ross. And then Chain Reaction come out and I was just like, oh, I don't know if I like this. This is like, this is like pop music. I'm like, I'm too cool for pop music now. Just <laughs> being a ridiculous tit of a teen. And I watched that documentary and they played that little clip of Chain Reaction. And I just thought, I need to go and re-listen to that. Yeah. It's amazing it's such an incredible pop record chain reaction and it, it just really oh it builds and builds and builds and one of her best vocals as well i think yeah yeah but it 
It's interesting because I could imagine the Bee Gees vocals on on Chain Reaction as yeah. well. And I've I've noticed that with a lot of the songs that they've written, you can completely imagine them singing it. Like I didn't realize that they'd written the intro song to Grease, which I think is like I'm not, you know, I mean, like I loved the musical as a child, but I still think that that intro is a fucking great song. I, it's been chosen about three or four times on this podcast. Really? Just that, because Frankie Valley performs it, doesn't yes, it? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. just yeah. that, ba, 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 ba. Yeah. what a call of arms. Do you know yes, what I mean? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and another great intro as well, yeah. yeah. And I I loved that Bee Gees documentary. I, I, I loved it when they had footage of, they recreated the dance floor from Saturday Night Fever yeah. as their touring stage. That is so great. And they all had like choreographed dance moves on it and kind of how they walked on stage. Yeah, I love it. Absolutely love it. Wonderful. (laughs) Bishy track two. I'm going to take you back now. First song that you remember hearing, please, that had an emotional impact on you. So the first song I remember hearing that had an emotional impact on me was the intro from The Jungle Book by George Bronze. It's absolutely beautiful it plays on the credits opening the film and it's an orchestral piece of music and it it, um it just has this sense of mystery and wonder what I loved about those early Disney films is that there was a darkness which I think there's quite a lot of darkness in childhood you know and you you kind of you know that you know that you're going to go on a mysterious journey, but it's just kind of beautifully, it's like there again, it's really beautifully like developed. So you have this really intense kind of brass intro. And then I think like the flute comes in and and it's very like hypnotic, like a snake charmer. And, and then it goes into some really epic kind of Disney 60s strings. And it's really great. Like, like, um, I don't know whether you know the piece of music. I do, but it's yeah. really, it's really, it's really evocative. I remember I went to BAFTA to see David Arnold in conversation and he picked that piece of music. And I hadn't known until then who the composer of that of all of the orchestral and the incidental music on the jungle book was but yeah it's it's very beautiful and very emotional what would the emotion have been if you had to pinpoint it a sense of melancholy and wonder because if you think about it there is a sadness like there's a transformation in um well certainly i'm talking about you know the disney version of of the jungle book so you have a child who's been left in the jungle and he's brought up by some animals who basically teach him how to be more human the the animals teach Mowgli how to be human and he teaches the animals how to have more compassion so you're getting people from opposite ends of the spectrum trying to sort of give each other love and then he gets to a point where they deliver him back to mankind because he doesn't actually belong in the jungle he belongs with his own people but it's that sense of transformation that people from two opposite ends of the spectrum can come together and create change Um, and even when they go off in their separate directions they've affected each other and that's what a great relationship is it's really emotional when I'm talking about it like that's like that's what a good relationship is you you come into each other's life through whatever situation and you impact each other in a really positive way. Um, it's really emotional. <laughs> 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 it's really... <laughs> 
So, so where where would you have seen that first? Like, where was home? Where was growing up, Bishy? So, growing up was in West London in West Kensington, which is where Hanif Kureshi um, based the Buddha of suburbia. I grew up in a block of flats, which is opposite a pub that the Sex Pistols played one of their first shows. It's called the King's Arms now. It was called something else. Julian Temple actually interviewed me inside that pub for another film project of his called London, The Modern Babylon. So I remember being a tiny person watching it on a VHS player. And yeah, yeah, like in it, the speaking of punk, like maybe, I don't know, like you cross the street and then it's the King's Arms. I wish I could remember the name of that of that pub but yeah very much in 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 punkville i mean years after yeah you know um but yeah that's where i grew up how was it growing up in west london um it was a very interesting intersection i grew up on a, on the intersection of a very very busy road that took you to the suburbs which is where all of the indian community that i grew up around were around and then, you know, really near the A40 flyover. So then it was really quick to, to get into town. Um, I feel lucky that I had a lot of, I grew up in a, you know, in a very multicultural way. I had really great role models from all different races. And I'm really thankful to my parents for that. They specifically didn't want to live in the suburbs and just be with all of the other Indian people. They They specifically... You know, they love this country and they love the opportunity that this country gave. And they just had really interesting friends, you know. So, yeah, they, my, my dad had his mates from Essex who had been roadies for The Who. And then, he, you know, he he had a, his driving license when he was 11 because he drove the president of the Rotary Club in Darjeeling home drunk. But his, he got his actual license in this country from a really lovely Jamaican guy called Errol. And it's like so many of these friends of theirs are just still friends now. It's yeah. really, really amazing. And I just feel really thankful to having such a range of different culture and just really excellent, just like really lovely role models who are still with us to this day. Wonderful. Yeah. Track three, the song that reminds you of your time at school, please. Track three, the song that reminds me of my school days is Hyper Ballad by Bjork. Um, so Post came out when I was 12. It's also when I think I think I'm the, the generation that the Spice Girls was aimed at. Mm. But I had a very cool older sister who was playing me Sonic Youth and Hole and got me into alternative stuff. So I was buying Select Magazine and reading NME and Melody Maker. Select and... posters on the wall? Like, yes, yes. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously. <clears throat> but, um, I can't... Oh, yes. So a very cool older sister of a friend introduced me to Bjork's debut. So maybe I was 10, 11 when, when debut came out. So I, I, rather than being Spice Girls generation, I'm generation Bjork. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I remember loving Venus as a boy and knewing it was like sexual, but not really knowing why. And, you know, and so, yeah, I mean, Bjork and skin from Skunk and Nancy, watching them do Army of Me on top of the pops was Next level, you know, everything we're talking about in music in terms of women, inclusivity, or like alternative 
narratives, like really alternative women, really take it like dominating that space. And no, none more so. Extraordinary, yeah. For the Brit Awards, when Bjork and Polly Harvey uh, done Satisfaction, completely stripped down, just Polly playing the guitar. Oh my god! I remember just thinking, this is exciting, and like, and this is the stuff that your parents are just like, what's this? Like, yeah. And it's like, good, it ain't for you. <laughs> it is yeah. for us. Like, yeah, 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 absolutely. And I remember watching the Hyper Ballad video. It must have been on whatever kids TV. And those Michelle Gondry, that, 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 you know, we talk about sort of hyper pop and NFTs. And when you look at the kind of artwork and visuals that are doing really well on Instagram and TikTok, but it's kind of what Michelle Gondry was doing with Bjork in 1995. It's absolutely extraordinary. And there again, it's another really, another song that builds. Maybe there's a theme going on with my song choices that it starts, you know, it, it, it starts small and then gets bigger and then gets bigger and bigger. And that's kind of what the video does as well. And it just had a massive impact on the kind of artist that I've really sought to be. Was you always... Because, like you say, you was that that sort of Spice Girls, you know, mid nineties generation. Yeah. In in those formative years, um, what was it that kind of? I mean, did, did you like the Spice Girls as well? I should say that I'm about to kind of just go. You know, did that have any impact on you? But yeah. Um. So no, they weren't my thing. But of course, I still went to see Spice World on Boxing Day because <laughs> that's what did. all school. That's what all school girls did. And I'm not going to lie and say that like I didn't think it was fun. And also, my older sister was mates with some members of Sonic Youth, and they loved the Spice Girls. One of them had a Spice Girls teacher. Jim O'Rourke had a Spice Girls t-shirt that he wore all the time and as I've got older I respect what these four pretty like down to earth like I hate to use the ordinary but just three regular women Mm -hmm. sorry five regular women (laughs) I can't count five regular women who you know weren't from any posh backgrounds didn't you know really like five regular women took over the world and what they must have gone through. And that's how I view it now. Like, it's not, I never loved the music. It's not really for me. But what they endured as women, I have absolute respect for. But as a, as a, young, as a young woman, you know, in those sort of teen years when it would make sense that everybody would be drawn to the kind of super colourful pop stuff that's being pushed upon you, what was it about, the likes of Bjork and Kim Gordon and and people like that and Courtney Love that made you think, no, actually, this is a bit of me. And Justine Freesham as well. Yeah, I I, I think, I just think, I think because I just got an authenticity and a power, I taught myself the bass guitar. I just, I, I just felt there was more depth and a bit more weight to what they were doing and there was more music. There was darkness and depth. I felt that I identified with their tropes of power. I felt like I just, it it made me, absorbing their music made me feel like I could be more of myself, even though I didn't necessarily know what that is, you know. And so, like, I I was going to school in, in Baker Street and I'd go back, I'd route back through Soho 
and there would be, you know, there was that poster, like um, there was that vintage poster shop. So there would be shots of the Renettes and Emma Peel. And obviously, yeah, there were all of those cheap bookstores with all of those Tashin books. So I would look, I, I would sit and flick through the Thierry Mugler book and the Jean-Paul Gaultier book. And on Sunday, uh, on Sundays, the Sunday time style it was edited by Isabella Blow, who uh, like I, I met and, you know, and and Philip Treacy, who I've also met and Nick Knight, who I've been shot by. And so there was this really powerful, definitive couture imagery and it just spoke to me. It made me feel like I could be more of myself. More than, I mean, you know, more than the Spice Girls, but it's all right. You're allowed to like bits of popular culture and really avant culture. And I think we've got to a nice place where you can like a bit of quote unquote, like shit TV, you know, like you can, like you can still enjoy British Bake Off, but then you can enjoy like a really weighty uh, documentary on David Lynch on Mubi, but I can still like Great British Bake Off and Gogglebox. Like, do you know what I mean? I think, I think, I think it's good for everyone to have a little bit of both. Um, but yeah, it's just more like the darkness and the authority and also it, from women playing their own instruments that appeal to me more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you mentioned that it's all right to like that and like that and it was okay to like Elastica and it was okay to like the Spice Girls at the same time. Yeah. I, for me, it felt, uh, I mean, I was probably like 18, 19 around the 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 mid nineties and it was an, an incredible time to, to be an indie kid, which I was. Um, and it felt like, you know, everything was super exciting, but it also felt. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently. I asked Mint Mobile's legal team. If big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation, they said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, what the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow! Did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. Quite tribal. Um, yeah. in, in regards to like the the, the the youth cultures were quite sort of defined. You know, it'd be like right, there's a raver. That kid's a Brit pop kid. You know, that yeah. kid's like a metalhead. And and for somebody that still runs a venue, yeah. I don't see them kind of that kind of tribalism in music so much now. No. Like, 
do you know what I mean? I wonder what your thoughts yeah, are on, on that, that kind of that you know the because we see so many kind of like you know galleries opening with these you know huge exhibitions of like youth culture you know yeah. and 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 I just yeah. think what where, where is it now? Maybe I'm too old to know. I don't know, yeah. but yeah. it feels to me that it's far more blurred now. And I guess that could be a good thing and a bad thing. I just wonder what your yeah. thoughts are on it. Yeah, definitely. When it comes to music, I think people are a lot more open-minded. And not that they weren't open-minded before, they were just very tribal, like you like two-tone or you like dance music or you like this. And of course, all of the nerds and the crate diggers and and people who are just into music just like love music because they love music. Um, I think maybe that kind of tribalism has gone into things like gender and sexuality and it's all on social media and it's you know which i think it, i think having more variety is great and i'm on everybody's side and i'm on the side of the underdog and blah 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 but in terms of that kind of tribalism i think identity has gotten very tribal in a way that i think that the variety is great but the kind of the inbred arguing and the kind of cancellations and the i think i think annie clark who's like one of my great you know great modern heroines I can't quite remember the words that she used, but she didn't want to use the words cancel culture. Um, um, Maybe I'm like, you know, um, let me think of the best way to talk about this because it's, it's like there's definitely tribalism and it is quite scary what's going on. It is scary. Like people are very sort of at each other's throats at the moment. And I think that. I think things like nightclubs, you know, I I was one of the last generations to experience really cheap rent. The early days of the internet with cheap rent and everyone going out every night of the week, you know. I mentor a lot of young producers and young artists and young bands and they always ask me how I did it. And it's like, I just went out every night and you see people out every night and what they don't really understand is that the queer scene, the indie kids, the goths, the fetish scene, the rock and rollers, we were all just alternative and everybody just kind of went to each other's parties. Yeah. It didn't, it didn't really like, it didn't really matter. Like we, we didn't really need the kind of rules. There are a lot of clubs that have a lot of rules now and I understand why, but it was so hard to find your tribe back then that we were all mixing it up and going to like mad squat parties in East London and Peckham and people were breaking into places. <laughs> there used to be this mini cab office on the city road that my friends always broke into. There were always just like, you know, like fashion designers, people at art college, people showing their collections, bands playing. There was this real cultural osmosis and, I felt like I was one of the last generations to really experience that. And I was talking to some members from Big Joni because we're all around the same age. And you're like, yeah, that sweet spot of like Wi-Fi and cheap rent. And everyone had a shit job, but it was fine because you just went out every night and it was brilliant, you know? (laughs) Yeah. And so before we move on, just, just to sort of stay on school for a little bit. Yes. How was school? Um, I didn't have a very good time. I went to a girls' school. There are a lot of um incredibly wealthy girls there, and 
it was very cutthroat in terms of like all the rich girls sat on the top of the pyramid and it's sort of subconsciously all of the like more all of the poorer and all of the like young girls of color like everybody was further down the pyramid and it was mercenary and I fucking hated it but however what was great was that I started playing in bands when I was 14 and I was discovered quote unquote discovered by the performance art band Minty who um, were founded by the late Lee Bowery and so I entered into this very alternative world of Uh, queerness and performance art and people doing drag and people you know people gender bending with identity in a way that was you know for me it was like I just wanted to find who's the version of Andy Warhol's factory and I kind of ended up entering into that world Uh, the whole goldie metalheads Asian underground thing I was just that little bit too young but I did know or, you know, I did know the, the, the key members of the Asian underground. Now they're my friends, you know, it, and and I felt very lucky. I, I feel like I've had a very uh, I've had a very one off experience in terms of like, you know, I did go to Metalheads like really underage once because it would go off in the afternoon and then carry off into the evening. And I remember those early days of Hoxton Square where there really were just two Tesco bags blowing around in the wind. <laughs> there was like nothing. It was a no man's land. And I feel very lucky that I experienced all of that. And I was really taking care of my older friends and my kind of disco family, my drag family, um, really looked after me. Tell me... A little bit more about, you said that you got pulled into the world of Minty. This interests me a, a hell of a lot. Um, I have a I have an episode that I recorded in lockdown with um, Matthew, Matthew, isn't it? Uh, Glam- yeah, Matthew yes. and, oh, who was the other member? Richard Torrey. Richard, Richard and Matthew. Yeah. So I have um, what started off uh, as being uh, an hour-long episode become a five-hour episode. I bet. Uh, which I then went, I'm going to give this back to you and you can edit it uh, as to what you want to have kept in it. Uh, and, and it was bananas. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, sure. I, I saw Minty... Um, uh, again, I'm a big fan of Barry, and and I saw Minty, and it to this day was probably still one of the most surreal things I've ever experienced in my life. Um, supporting Pulp, actually. Yeah. Um, but tell me about your involvement in, in that. Yeah, so I came onto the scene after Lee Barry had passed away and I think they'd just come off the pulp tour and they were they were just in the process of releasing that record and I think behind the scenes obviously they lost their leader so it was very very fraught but in terms of me they were just really nice and really supportive to me um I didn't actually play with them at the time. It was more like they just took me, Matthew took me to a lot of parties and introduced me to a lot of people. I think he could see that there was this powerful young woman and that she needed encouragement and she needed guidance. I mean, he was certainly in, he was certainly in that headspace then, you know, he was very, very nurturing. He's very good with, he's very good at being able to see people, 
um, struggle with their potential and to look at them and encourage them to be more of themselves. And so he was really brilliant and we were involved. We set up a classical music nightclub called the Siren Suite um, and we opened for Goldfrap and Pulp. And that was when I was at I was at St. Martin's doing my foundation then. And we set up another club called Cashpoint, which is like the precursor to this massive kind of you know, you know huge explosion of queerness that we see now it's it's an, cash it's point incredible. was a big deal like, yeah, don't yeah. just don't oh just God, skirt yeah. over that cash point was a big <laughs> deal did you? yeah 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 so i was the main dj there and i helped fat 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 i founded it i, I co-founded it or, or whatever they say now um but yeah 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 that was a really big deal and and the how big sort of queerness and queer culture how mainstream it is now the roots of that was already going on around Clubs like Cashpoint and Nag 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 and the whole Electric Clash thing. But what I loved about that era is there was a lot of crossover with the indie scene. We had people from the fetish scene, the film scene. You know, we had all of that, like Libertines, Baby Shambles lot. It's just because sort of at that point, Matthew knew everybody. Mm. And so everybody just sort of came to his clubs. And that's something that I really liked about Matthew. He had this cross section of people, you know, back then, he was friends with the, you know, this cross section of different people in London, and he was very good at bringing all of those people together. So that's something that really appealed with, uh, you know, a, a appealed to me about our relationship. And yeah, it was a yeah, it's it's been a one-off experience, Stu. <laughs> <laughs> For somebody that was trying to do something alternative and different out in Essex, I would look in at what was happening there, and it was like that's what I want to be the, that, really that you ha you know you think that's perfect right there that hybrid of scenes all coming together it just felt really exciting looking in at that and and I think for us at that point we're probably going through a more kind of because it was more just straight up kind of indie alternative music it was it hit a I don't know I don't know it just felt like we was like not quite where we should be. And I'd look in at what you guys were doing. And it was like, oh, wow, that looks so exciting. I want a bit of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, it was mental, but brilliant, brilliant. Mm. What, like, what an experience to have, you know? Okay. Track four. The first song you remember buying from a record shop, please, Bishy. The first song I remember buying from a record shop, I bought the Beatles 1962 to 66 from Gorla Market in, in Calcutta when I was there on holiday in India. And my mom's a singer and she was recording an album. And I, I remember her, we bought this cassette tape together and she said, these guys are going to keep you. They're going to be your friends when I'm away. Um, and she's absolutely right. They were my friends. I was convinced. What an amazing thing to say to your kid. Yeah. That's yeah. so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I thought, you know, when I used to watch those Beatles films when I was a kid, I seriously thought they were my best friends. I was absolutely convinced. Um and then it turns out years later that I've actually worked with Sean Lennon. I, I worked on, I recorded on one of his horror movie soundtracks and, and, and we've actually kind of written material together and, and become friends, which is, you know, he's, he's been a, a great supporter and a great advocate for my music. And 
yeah, it's it's all nice how these things come round together. But yeah, that album, I, I know you asked for song, but it was the first thing that yeah, I bought. that's fine. And um, it was really emotional. I, I loved all of the material. Obviously, when Yesterday came on, I felt a bit teary. I mean, obviously, you know, like even not really understanding what, what then quite happened to, to the Beatles and to John Lennon, I, I felt very emotional when yesterday came on it I think when my mum was recording her album I remember when yesterday came on I sort of wished I could talk to her on the phone it was like I want to talk to my mum um but yeah I just I just think you know I I, I see on social media a lot a, a lot of people love to like bash the Beatles or there are loads of like anti-Beatles memes all over social media and I just always write the same thing in the comments, just like, you fucking idiots. These are the first people to really put Indian culture on the global map. You know, prior to the Beatles, the West went over there for business purposes. They were there to do business. The Beatles went over as artists to learn about a culture and they re-put that culture back on the map. And, you know, you know, like another name drop, but Anushka Shank is also a friend of mine who's really supported me and advocated for my music. I've played her festival over the summer on the South Bank and, you know, they put a lot of good things into the world and I'm over people slagging it off because they think it's boomer or, or they're just too fucking lazy to do any research. Um, yeah, uh, so that's my soapbox. <laughs> no, that's so, that's so true. And, and as well, I just think, how many bands can you look at that existed in the time frame that the Beatles existed in and put out that amount of prolific work and not one album sounded like the one that come before it? Exactly. You know, within a yeah. matter of years, you go from Twist and Shout to fucking Tomorrow Never Knows. It's like, yeah. come on. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've never yeah. understood that kind of bashing the Beatles thing. It's like you don't like anything that the Beatles have ever done. It's like, come on, don't believe you. Don't believe yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also learning about their recording uh, techniques. So they would have to play everything from start to finish perfectly. And obviously, you know, you can hear it with the Helter Skelter, I've got blisters on my fingers. It's like take 69 or like whatever number take it is. I've actually read quite extensively into how they recorded this stuff. And um uh, I think the book's somewhere on my um, uh, bookshelf back there, but they, they got the Kaiser Chiefs in to try the same recording techniques as the Beatles. And they were almost crying. Like they had four hours to get this one song right. And they were really at the edge of everything. And they got the take, but it really taught them just how perfect you had to be in those analog recording days or just the kind of like, just how limited they were technologically and what they've managed to achieve and how good it still sounds now. Um, it's fine. Like, it's really nerdy chat. Not like, I know, like, most musicians and nerds and sound people, everybody respects them because of what they actually created. Um, but I'm over the anti-Beatles memes because I just think, you know, most of the people who laugh at them think they're really progressive. And it's like, well, if you think you're progressive, then you should know that 
these four guys from Liverpool, they're again like just normal dudes from Liverpool. There's some something in them, like India appealed to them. And they would have gone when India was in quite a difficult time politically and and they went there as students of a culture. So and that affects me. That I, it's affected everybody, but it certainly affects me in terms of like putting Indian culture on a world stage from a really beautiful perspective. Okay. Track five it is now. Uh, I'm going to ask you to tell me, please, the song that soundtracked your years clubbing. The song that soundtracked my years clubbing, I'd say Get Your Freak On, Missy Elliott. That's a tune, isn't it? It's, I mean, just incredible. So that kind of early aughts, that Timberland, the early Neptunes, Aaliyah, Missy Elliott, Mary J. Blige. It's a very different sound palette to everything I've picked, which is why I decided to go for this song in particular. But, I mean, my God, what they were doing production-wise, what they were doing with their looks, with their videos... There again, like 20 years on, it still looks and sounds like the future. You know, I'm on TikTok and I watch reels and stuff and you've got a new generation and they're completely remixing all of that Missy Elliott stuff. And it's it's not that they're, you know, that they're just dancing to it. They're doing other things. They're doing really interesting things with their looks and they're doing really interesting things choreography wise. But that's the power of that, of, of Missy Elliott is that, 20 years later, people are still referencing and remixing it. And I think she did a performance at the VMAs like a couple of years ago. I mean, it just absolutely blew me away. She's, I don't know, like, I don't know if you've seen it, but the last scene is insane. So they've got this Roswell scene where there's a spaceship over the arena stage. And then there were like, people dressed as scarecrows and like and like and her on the top of the hay bale in some insane straw hat and like a farmer's outfit like really rapping and then and then this alien falls out of the spaceship it's like what were they smoking this is so amazing not not just from the choreography and from the production point of view but what were the initial like show production yeah. meetings it's like so we've got this you know, like, we've got this idea. She's going to start in a mirrored hallway with a load of, like, femme sex bots. And then we're going to blow her up and she'll <laughs> fall into the audience. And then she's going to be rapping on a hay bale. Like, what the fuck, you know? It, um, absolutely incredible. Actually, in lockdown, um, I got Masterclass and I did Timberland's beat-making Masterclass. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's what, a, that's what a fan I am. And, yeah, I actually, you know what? I think she follows me on Twitter. I think I should send her my music, right? A hundred percent. hundred percent. Why haven't you done I, it already? Yeah, no, I, I know. I, I, there again, they were using uh, kind of Arabic music. I, I think from what I remember, her and Timberland had their studio above an Arabic barbers or like, you know, like it was in a very kind of like multicultural bit. Um, I don't know what exactly what American city they were, but they, they had this tiny studio and they would overhear the sounds from the cassettes and, and, and from people's different um, um, cabs and, and stuff. And uh, 
And I think the guy, when the things, they asked him to say, can you sing, get your freak on? And he was like, no, I don't really do that. You know, so, so he just sang that. And I know that Timberland's sound palette, he's very into like non-Western scales and, you know, he, he was able to capture the spirit of Asia and the Middle East through hip hop at that time, like better than a lot of us could do it. And I think that speaks to the power of like cultural subversion. And sometimes other people can look into your culture and see something special and, uh, you know, use it, appreciate it in a way that you can't do it for yourself. Totally. It's a banging tune. It really is. (laughs) I mean, before you got into sort of DJing at clubs and you yeah. just, you know, in the, the kind of early years of going clubbing, what did you want from a night out? Oh, well, being friends with Matthew Glamour, um, I think what I wanted was people looking amazing. I think sounds I've never heard. I think, you know, the, the other record that I was going to put in and then I went to Missy Elliott was Where's Your Head At? basement jacks because that really reminds me of like when I really started clubbing kind of school school days you know I was really underage and we'd go to so we'd go to Soho I'd I'd go to Camden in the stables market they had all they had like you know five vintage garments for 20 quid so you know you could pick up some incredible labels and some incredible items of clothing like five for 20 quid so you know, and then we'd dress up and then we'd either go to the Astoria or we'd go all the way down Soho. Um, we'd go and see live bands in Camden and then sort of end up in house parties in East London. I wasn't really doing the South London thing that much yet, but that really brings back that being very underage, getting into clubs anyway, because all girls read and are just a lot more mature than teenage boys. Um you know, really, yeah, like vodka, lemon and limes and Smirnoff ice. Oh, my God, it's all coming back now. But, yeah, and, and, and you know, I, I, there again, I'd mix it up going to all of the all of the gay clubs, going to G.A.Y. Yes, I'm admitting that. Um, going to more of the underground gay clubs, kind of Madame Jojo's. Um, but then going to things like Club Kitten and, like, you know, Dingwalls and... Just really, really absorbing. I, I think that film Velvet Goldmine had just come out. And so there was that sort of appreciation back for glam rock. And then it was the end of the Britpop thing. But then all of that kind of garbage Nine Inch Nails stuff was happening. And then all of that, you know, all of that dance music, Basement Jacks, Chemical Brothers, um, all of that was coming up when I started underage clubbing and it was just really exciting. Was you confident? Yes and no. I think confidence is a multi-leveled, it's, it, it, it's like a tiered cake, isn't it? So I definitely had a lot of guts in terms of I knew what I wanted, I knew what I wanted to go for, but I think your self-esteem and your confidence is like an ever-changing thing. And you just have to work with it. So, yeah, yeah, I had massive insecurities then. I'm more aware of the things that I'm insecure and I'm scared of now. And I try and treat it with a bit more love and respect. 
everyone's going through it, right? Hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, hundred percent. We'll take you home. Track six. Favorite song from an artist from your home county, please. A favorite song from by uh, my favorite song by an artist from my home county. I thought about this long and hard. It's Lady Stardust by David Bowie. And it's because I grew up so close to the Hammersmith Palais, which is obviously where the last Ziggy Stardust show was. It's a beautiful song. It's a really hard song to sing as well. Um, Bowie was such a fantastic vocalist. I think what I love about Lady Stardust is there again, it has queerness and gender and live music and people getting up on stage and performing. And those four things are huge to my story and huge to my experience. Even though this song was written like, you know, definitely a decade, you know, at least a decade before I was born. um, There's something about what what the whole Ziggy phenomenon encapsulates in terms of the effect that it's had on on all of us really although I prefer late Bowie I I prefer his Berlin period and you know I'm lucky so lucky that I worked with with Tony Visconti and uh, you know I have him as a friend and a mentor there's something about that song that I think is very evocative and and emotional and the lyrics are beautiful as well really really beautiful um, I want to ask you uh, in, in a moment about working with Tony Visconti because yeah. let, let's not just brush over that. Um, <laughs> tell me about your relationship with 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 London. Like, how's that changed over the years? Have you fallen out of love with London and fallen back in love with London? How, how's the relationship been? No, I love London, but I really don't think it's the way that things are. It's become a city for the super rich. And it's just become so expensive. Um, I'm lucky. I have roots here. I have family here. And I find it hard. So I think if I find it hard, what does someone who's moved here or someone who's had to set up shop from another town or another country, what are they going through? You know, the things that I love about this city, the small grassroots venues, the small tiny boutiques, those small pockets that you can go to and, and 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 sort of live it's um it's still full of interesting people and interesting things and there's stuff to do every day of the week and I, I love that but you know the rent is so expensive just just basic living has become so difficult for people and I really mourn that it's like everything has just become one giant members club you know and it didn't used to be like that. I think explaining to people what pre-gentrified London was like, like, yes, it was dangerous and and no, it wasn't fancy. And no, you couldn't have a latte on every street corner. And, you know, you, you did have to wait for very shit buses and shit areas. And, you know, it, it, it was, there was an element of danger. And I don't think that's just because I was a teenager or, or, or a young woman. There was, you could really feel the tinge of danger. Like I remember living in Haggerston kind of long before it was the like Haggerston slash what some people call Faggerston. That's probably RPC lol. Um, but yeah, it's just, just when you look at some of the footage for you know like we'd run around the 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 streets of east london making pop videos and stuff and 
when you see what it was like, it was like, yeah, it was dangerous. I, I had a guitarist who was a Dior model. And so he looked like a girl. I mean, he was quite amazing looking. And, you know, people tried to beat him up right outside my flat where I lived in Haggerston. Of course, now he would just be applauded for like looking so androgynous. That's the irony. But it was rough, you know, it was, it, it was, it was dangerous. Um, but there was the freedom in terms of, you know, once like the girl, like the girls from Big Joni, it's like, we were all fine just having a shit job a couple of days a week in some vintage shop that, you know, like, like no one really understood like how it was there. Like, you know, like we were fine all doing little jobs here and there and, then the majority of our week we'd be able to be creative or like explore more creative endeavors. And as I say, like the young, you know, artists and and producers and people that I mentor now, that you have to have a full-time job all the time and and be, you know, being a slave to a Spotify algorithm where you're supposed to have a new song and a new video and a new campaign every six weeks. It's like, how the fuck do you manage that? You know? Um, and I think this is all keyed into the just how expensive everything has got in London. And so I mourn and lament that. And I think that why I'm so passionate about creative people getting together, like, you know, podcasts, people, people getting together and having a space just to talk a bit. Um, in in some kind of like one-to-one like you know even though like we are like on zoom now this is a real conversation and the reason that I favor this is because it's making up for all of those spaces that I feel have gone I I think the the one thing that I I, I love about um podcasting and just quickly Bishy everything you just said there I completely agree with and I, and I think yeah. you put that so so well then um yeah, and and for me I watch growing up watching so many music shows that no longer exist and there's very few music shows even on the television anymore yeah. uh, and 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 what I do think is missing from television and radio is long-form conversation and if you get somebody that you're really excited about that are going to be on Graham Norton or Jonathan Ross unfortunately I mean there's a place for them show hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And I've watched them for years, and and that's cool. But come in, sit down, tell us an anecdote, have a quick chat with the guests that are sitting next to you. What you plug in next guest? Don't yeah. get anything from that. And like, yeah. and it always just seems very fast. And I watch my kids' thumbs on their phones, and they're they're super fast. And it's like maybe it's just my age. I don't know, but I like I like the idea of a podcast. It's like right. Well, look for the next hour, mm. we can just yeah. have a chat. And like, yeah. and and I think there's something really nice about that. And I think 
that's one of the things that's definitely made you know podcasting become what it has which is this yeah. huge thing now that that you know i think ultimately will eclipse radio and uh, because people there's so much more choice now and, and you can yeah. literally find something that is exactly what you're into if you're into yeah. somebody that's basket weaving in the andes i'm sure there's a podcast do you know what i mean like. <laughs> i'd listen to that that sounds great yeah yeah i think i think well i mean i've done bits for radio four as well so there's definitely an art form to that which i really appreciate but i think that there's a sense of connection that just normal conversation between people is so fascinating. You know, um, I did uh, an Instagram live last night with the writer Nikesh Shukla. And one of the beautiful things that he says is that in his writing, he finds the extraordinary in the ordinary. And that's what a lot of podcasting is. It's just these extraordinary anecdotes. And like, I think, you know, very often when we talk about growing up, you can like sometimes really live in your pain and, 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 and kind of live with like some difficult memories. But in this conversation, I like, there's this whole other side that like I'm talking about more and more, but it is like being an underage clubber in the late nineties, just at the dawn of the internet, being one of the first generations to really utilize the internet and have a career basically as a result. And there's a lot of excitement and joy and happiness and just like fucking hilariousness that I know is there, you know, and I know that all of the shadow and like all of the difficult stuff is there as well, but it's really nice through music to remember all of the hilarious and, and all of the great stuff. Wonderful. Because there was so much of it. Well, Bishy, for the last track, you get to, um, you get to go back to, 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 uh, to, to your DJing days and play Tastemaker and, and introduce someone to something new. And so for that track, I'm going to ask you, please, to tell me a song that you think many people may not know that you would like them to hear. So many of you may not know that the song I would love you to hear is Le Fleur by Minnie Ripperton. There again, another absolutely epic song with this beautiful, sensual, like breathy delivery. And even the lyrics are really abstract as well. It's very abstract, but you know what it is. You, you, you know, the, a song like Le Fleur encapsulates that moment of like, you're just having a massive out breath, you know, or, you, or, or something's just clicked or you know, you've, you or I don't know, it, like if you go on long walks and or, or you're sitting by the sea and just something clicks, you know, you've been really struggling with something and it's this massive like eureka moment of right, I understand this, and that's what Le Fleur is, and it's. I think it was on a KFC advert. <laughs> it's another hilarious. It's like how did that end up on that advert? And I remember singing it to my boyfriend at the time and he knew what it was. And so I, I think it's, it's, uh, I think it encapsulates that. I think there's something about love and about finding oneself and about finding connection. And that's what Le Fleur is. And it's so sad because Minnie Ripperson died when she was 30 and she was Maya Rudolph's mother, which I had no idea. I thought that was so amazing. And the whole, um, you know, there again, like Minnie Ripperton was very different because 
she was like a black hippie. You know, I, I love that front cover of her and she's got the flower crown and she's by the lion. A lot of people have, have tagged me in that. And then on the front cover of Come Into My Garden where she's... You know, yeah, she's she's like a black pagan, which is quite and quite an amazing. I, I I can't think of a of a female singer before Minnie Ripperton who quite had that trope. I mean, yeah, Minnie Ripperton was a, a a genius and she was an original and she was a pioneer, but she was also playing with the trope that I don't think had really been played with before, certainly by by an African American woman. And um, what a loss. Do you know what I mean? What, what a loss. What an incredible, incredible singer. And that kind of vocal range that then, um, you know, Mariah Carey came along in the early 90s. Like, there again, someone whose music I, I, I don't love, but as a kind of a woman and an entity who exists, I think is just quite quite bonkers and quite amazing in her own right. Mm. Um you know that she has a, probably the same vocal range as as, as Minnie Ripperton. So, just incredible, incredible song. Bishy, we put together a, a Spotify playlist to accompany the the pod chat, so people can go and listen to uh, all of the records that that we've spoken about today. Um, as we kind of heading into the sort of latter part of of twenty twenty one, which hopefully is going to be a far more happier connected and 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 and, yeah better place than than what the beginning of 2021 was um with that in mind what are you looking forward to from the rest of this year personally and what's going to be happening professionally so personally oh that's a really good question I think um I think the personal and the professional are kind of really interlinked um But yeah, let me try and take this from a really personal point of view. I think, um, well, I'm in the process of making a sound and video installation for Coventry City of Culture, and it's going to be installed along the canal um, basin on five screens. So I'm really personally, just artistically, really enjoying the process. I've co-produced it with Richard Norris from The Grid and I've got Hazel O'Connor doing some spoken words Fuck. like yeah 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 yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've I've not really announced this yet but fuck it you know um and I've I've written it for uh piano sitar and violin and electronics I've got some brilliant uh two f- brilliant film composers Anna Phoebe who's playing violin and Alexandra Hamilton Ayres who's a pianist and and they're doing those parts it's it's like a really epic like nine minute like nine like nearly 10 minute piece and Hazel O'Connor is doing some some spoken words so just personally just getting all of that together that has just been so amazing um and I was in the ruins of Coventry Cathedral the other day doing some 3D modeling on a polycam so um, it's going to look very futuristic, and from from a personal perspective, there's there's nothing greater than being creative. There's just nothing nothing beyond that. And I really hope that now the travel ban is lifting in the US, that I can go and see my best friend in LA and my sister in Austin, Texas. That's totally person personal. But professionally, I've got my third studio album coming out on October the fifteenth. 
There's a launch at the Purcell Room on October the 13th. Um, I'm playing at Anushka Shankar's Festival in Hamburg and I'm opening for Garbage in Bournemouth on the 17th of November. Um, that's, you know, that's all just dream come true. Um, I'm also, I've written a choral piece for 200 kids in East London um, based on their emotions that they went through feeling lonely and locked down. So I based all of the lyrics and that. So I've got all of that stuff happening. And um, I just, I feel really lucky that in a difficult period that amazing projects came to me and um, it's, it's meant everything to me. Bishy, if people want to kind of not miss out on any of the things that you've just yeah. listed there, where's the best place to kind of keep up to speed with what you're up, what you're up to? So I'm most active on my Instagram, which is instagram.com forward slash Bishy official. Also bishy.co.uk. Um, I update my, uh, yeah, I've got a link tree, which is linktree.com forward slash Bishy official, all one word. But yeah, Instagram's the most active place to, you know, all my website are the most active place to look out for these things. Also on my Spotify profile as well. I think I think I should say that. Yeah. <laughs> Bishy, this has been one of my favourite ever episodes I've ever recorded. This oh, been, I'm so happy. It's been an is... absolute joy. Oh, no, it's it's made me really happy as well. Just the power of talking about music and talking about live music and why that is so important to people it never fails does it never never don't go anywhere i'm going to wrap up the podcast but don't go anywhere right bishy honestly thank you so much thank you Right, I've never done this before and i am going to drop in a segment before the outro because well, am I even going to do the outro first and then mention that I'm going to do this? Yeah, that's what I'm going to do. Um, and so I mentioned in the com- in the conversation that uh, I wanted to speak about Bishy working with Tony Visconti. We finished the podcast about half an hour ago, and I've just been banging on about some Britpop memories and, and some guests that I've had on. And we've been having a lovely natter. And then it's just dawned on me that I never got round to having that chat about um, Bishy working with Tony. So um, you're back. <laughs> Hello, I'm back. It's too good. It's they're just two good stories to not talk about, you know. Let's do it. Yeah. Well, how did it come about? So I was at a party in Dalston, and I ended up playing in a party band um, with a guy called Malcolm. And Malcolm is manager to the singer and fashion heiress goddess Daphne Guinness. And he said to me that he was working with Tony Visconti and would I like to come over to Ireland and hang out with them and maybe like maybe record. And I sort of took it off the cuff, like within a week, I was up in Daphne's penthouse in Mayfair in her wardrobe, which is the most incredible wardrobe. You know, we're talking like Iris Van Herpen and McQueen Couture original. So I have been in that. That is probably the best wardrobe I've ever seen. (laughs) And then the week after that, I was on an easy jet because I'm fly. I was on an easy jet to Ireland and I got driven out to the estate that they were at and and recording at. And um, 
obviously like Tony Visconti is one of my all-time record producing heroes. I've been obsessed with the work that he's recorded with Bowie, T-Rex, Sparks, Hazel O'Connor, just, just everyone really. And I honestly had no expectation. I knew as a session musician that I had to just get it right. You know, I just had to, Tony's one of those producers that he's, you know, you've got to get it in one take, you know, they, they don't really stand for anything else. And so it went ridiculously well. I trained with the Bulgarian. Oh my God, was I? Yeah, yeah, I was really, it was really nervous. And I don't usually get starstruck, but inside I was like, oh my God. (laughs) Um, And I trained with the Bulgarian choir as a teenager. And so that influence is really in my singing. And I was singing some backing vocals and I just remembered the look in his face. He sat back from his chair and I knew that I'd impressed him, which was amazing. And, and he's very charming. He's a great storyteller, great raconteur. He's funny. You know, he just kind of oozes like so much charisma. And it was really lovely because over the course of the three or four days, you know, we ate together and we'd chat and we went on walks together and, you know, and it was all very pleasant. And then after he heard me sing, um, we really bonded over this Bulgarian choral style and he revealed to me that he was in, he almost got the opportunity to produce Hounds of Love with Kate Bush, but then she decided that she was going to do it herself. You know, he's, he's, he's just full of these incredible stories. And I gave him a copy of my second album, Albion Voice. And I thought it's cool. Like uh, he's so famous. He must have musicians approach him all the time. You know, didn't think anything of it. I went to a rave in Cornwall, didn't sleep for three days and I got back home and I had this email and he was just told me he thought my music was stunning and pleased to keep in touch with him. If ever I was in New York to look him up, to get together. And then I wrote back to him and I said, I've just, I know I haven't had any sleep at this rave in Cornwall and it was quite rockabilly, but quite rave, but you know, then there were loads of rock and rollers and there was no security anywhere and it was really wild. And he, and he just wrote to me back and he said, well, why doesn't anyone invite me to these parties anymore? <laughs> <laughs> and so that burst a friendship. Um, I was his plus one when they opened the Visconti studio down in Kingston University and just this really beautiful friendship opened up. I went to his studio in New York in the very chair that Bowie sat whilst they were mixing and editing Black Star. And I got a masterclass in how they made Lodger because he was remixing Lodger at the time. So we took apart all of the tracks from Lodger and he played me the individual takes. And I heard Bowie's like naked vocal exposed um, singing some of the tracks from Lodger and I have never experienced anything like that. I walked from from kind of um, uh, Flatiron um, all the way to Bushwick. I walked and that is a long ass walk. And I just, I just couldn't sleep properly. I, I, I felt like I was flying because I had heard Bowie's one take vocals. He is such an incredible vocalist and you know, and, and Tony was really teaching me about different production methods. And then he asked me how I produced music. 
And well, actually, no, he asked me how I wrote music. And I said, well, I've got a home studio. I've got sitars, pianos, synths. I've got my bass guitar. I've got, you know, like various other like bits of equipment. And he said to me, oh, so you're a producer. And I was like, oh, I don't think, I, you know, like, you know, he said, no, no, Bishy, that's what a producer is. That is exactly how a producer works. And you must tell everybody that you're a producer. And I said to him, I feel unconfident about my technical knowledge. And he had this rack of even tied, like different plugins, like different toys. And he tapped it and he said, oh, that there. He was like, oh, that's easy. You can learn that anytime. Come on, you can learn that. And that would just absolutely change my life. And he was like, you must tell everybody you're a producer, you know. And um, I had the same masterclass when he remixed the Space Oddity for 50 Years of the Moon Landings. So he took me through the entire track of um, Space Oddity and taught me where all the microphone placements were. You know, oh there's the really, God. yeah. You know, there's the really epic bit uh, of the orchestra that fades out at the end of the original one. He had sort of repositioned that. And so you had more of that in the mix. And he taught me about how they placed all of the, where David was in the room and how they placed all of the microphones. And yeah, I made this song called Don't Shoot the Messenger and I sent it to him and I said, would you be interested in producing this? And he said, yes. And what I was amazed about is that he loved what I consider like quite shit production. He loved it. He he used it in the fabric of his production. And, you know, being in the studio and working with them, it's like Jedi training with Obi-Wan Kenobi. Like <laughs> we had a photographer capturing, we, we had some students from Kingston University who were training up in one engineer there was a very small team of us and everybody was mesmerized because it is like you are jedi training like with a master and we work really well together we know we want to work again together we know that that's on the cards and you know he has been nothing but totally encouraging of me as a songwriter as a producer as a performer and it's been life-changing wonderful well I mean, I got goosebumps when you was talking about Lodger. That absolutely blew my mind. I'm so glad that we revisited this and just managed to get this chat in because it's just added to an already incredible pod chat with you. Honestly, Bishy, thank you so much. Thank you, Stu. I want to come to Crocs. Whenever you want. (laughs) There you go. Thought we had finished. Nope, we went back. We had to revisit that. I'm so glad we did. Oh, working with Tony Fisconti, hearing isolated David Bowie vocals. Oh, my God, what a moment, mate. Goosebumps again just saying it. Um, oh, I had such a lovely chat. Like, how interesting was Bishy? Like, fascinating. Um, well, I hope you lot got as much joy listening as I did having that chat. Um, thanks ever so much for um, supporting the podcast. It, uh, you know, I really, really appreciate that. Um yeah, I guess, um, as I mentioned at the beginning as well, go check out the back catalogue because there's 350 episodes with some of your favourite musicians, producers, DJs, actors, comedians. Go go have a rummage, see what you can find. And, uh, and I'll be back next time. Everything you need to know um, about this podcast, your one-stop shop, offthebeatandtrackpodcast.com. See you next time. Bye-bye. It's off the beat and track podcast.
on the Distraction Pieces Network. Keep me, stew with him. Hey,